0: And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down on Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Well, good morning, good morning. If I haven't met you, my name is Gabe Coyle. I'm one of the pastors here. And last week, I was crazy sick, um, so... I got texts, emails um, from many of you. Thank you for your prayers, your encouragement. Um, They meant a whole lot. And on one such night, uh, this last week, when I was basically going from sleeping incessantly in my bed to then transitioning to the couch where I just dazed out uh, and was completely worthless, on one such night, I couldn't fall asleep at all. And uh, that's just not like me. Um, I'm the kind of person, especially when I'm really healthy, I fall asleep instantly, like... Even before my head hits the pillow, my wife gets really frustrated at me and how quickly I fall asleep. But on this particular night, when I was sick of all things, I could not fall asleep. So I'm tossing and turning, not just for like minutes, but for hours. I so desperately wanted sleep. I never have this experience. So it was unduly frustrating for me. Um, So at one point, finally at midnight, something had to change. So I like, you know, turned to Allie and I said, hey, sweetie, I'm going to get up. I just cannot fall asleep, to which she says, out of a dead sleep, you know, well, maybe God wants you to pray for someone. Okay, like, (laughs) listen, like, that was not, like, out of all the, all the framework, like, what, what, what should I do? How do I, like, that didn't even, it didn't even come into my mind at all. What does God want from me in this moment? Like, that was not what I was thinking and it, hear me, I mean, we all know this. In the everyday frustrations and just the normal flow of life, how easy is it for us to be consumed with what we want from others, from life, from God, such that our desires become the very center of how we navigate our life? When do we ask, what does God want? And so I want to ask that question of us this morning. What does Jesus want from you? It's a pretty weighty question. How would you answer that? And this is really important because how you answer this question gives a window into what you think is at the center of all of this. What does Jesus want from you? Now, the beauty of this question is that we don't have to sit in mystery. Actually, when you go to the gospel accounts and you look at story after story after story of people who knew Jesus best, who walked with Jesus, we come to have a pretty good, clear response or answer as to how Jesus would answer this question. And here it is. Jesus wants you to follow him today. Wherever he leads... He wants you to follow. He wants us to follow him. Now, pretty basic, right? Like in one sense, you're sitting there saying, hey, if you've been in church for a long time, you're thinking, Gabe, that's 101, that's elementary. Here's what's so important to understand. Some of the greatest truths around the Christian faith should be understandable by an eight-year-old and a seven-year-old and a six-year-old. And it's not like we move on to bigger and better things as adults. We just get better as adults, justifying not listening to those things. And this is why this is so grievous to me, because there are some of us in here, some of us in here who will never know the real Jesus because we've made a mess of this simple truth. There are some of us in here who will never know real freedom because we ignore this simple truth. There are some of us in here who will never be all that God longs for us to be because we are unwilling to embrace something so simple. So how do we follow him? If this is what he wants, how do we follow him? Now that question has been asked by thousands upon thousands of people for thousands of years all around the world. And as we continue our journey to rediscover the real Jesus as we walk through the eyewitness testimony in the gospel account of Luke as he's done his historical research, this morning we come to one of Jesus' earliest invitations when he actually lays it out there and invites someone to follow him. And what we're going to find in this earliest invitation is actually the hardest part in following him as well as the most crucial aspect to this whole thing. And if we get it, if we understand it, if it actually does come to shape our lives, then it unlocks certain depths in our life that we thought were unreachable. So let's take a look together, all right? If you haven't already, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5 and the passage that was just read for us, verses 1 through 11 is where we're going to spend our time. We find Jesus... In the coastal city of Capernaum, it's there along the Sea of Galilee. In our text, it's called the Lake of Gennesaret. It has a couple different names. And unlike the last time Jesus encountered the crowds when they were trying to kill him in his hometown, in this occasion, the crowds were quite friendly and they're pressing in on Jesus that he might proclaim the word of God to them, share the word of God with them. And as the numbers continue to swell, people are finding it difficult to hear Jesus. Right? You've got people in the front. Jesus' voice is bouncing off of them, and it's not making it to the people in the back. So Jesus has a brilliant idea. He's there on the coast, which is so important that where we find Jesus, the large majority of his time is not expecting people to come to him, but him going to people where they are, often in their workplace and their everyday lives. And so Jesus is there, and he sees two boats, they're a little bit offshore, and he sees the fishermen drying out their nets. And so the first thing he he notices and knows is he knows the geography of the land, that if he gets in one of these boats and actually goes a little bit offshore, then his his voice will bounce off the water, and people due to the very structure there of that particular area will be able to hear him better in the back row than if he were to stay on the beach. And then secondly, not to mention, he also knows one of the boat owners, Simon Peter. What we often, who we often call Peter, just shortened later, a lot more often. We just call him Peter. But here, Jesus knows Simon Peter. This isn't the first time he's run into this fisherman. If you look a little earlier in Luke, interestingly enough, Simon Peter invites Jesus into his house, and his mother-in-law is sick, has this debilitating fever, and he invites Jesus into his house, and Jesus obliges, and he asks Jesus to heal his mother-in-law, and he does. She goes from being horizontal basically lifeless, unable to do anything, to now being a host, running around, taking care of all the details. It's pretty miraculous. And so when Jesus looks at the two boats and sees that one of the fishermen are Simon Peter, and he asks Simon Peter to take him out into the water, Simon Peter basically doesn't have the option to say no. (laughs) And so we find now Simon Peter and Jesus in the boat together. This is important. It's not just Jesus in a boat by himself. Simon Peter is there. He's got his oars. He's keeping Jesus from drifting further away or going too close to shore or too far away. And he's sitting there. And then Jesus is seated in the front of the boat, teaching the crowds with authority. And then Jesus wraps up his teaching time. And he turns around and he looks right at Peter. And he says something really astounding. Look with me here at verse four he says to peter put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch now the first thing that's fascinating to note here is that for jesus the crowds are not where he does his most important work crowds aren't really that important like for us crowds are really important if you're in a performance oriented business crowds usually feel like a validation to you and your vocational calling. If you're a part of a crowd, you kind of feel validated that you're doing the right thing because there's other people who are doing it. It's like if you go to a restaurant and it's packed, you're like, "This, I must have picked a good restaurant, right? But for Jesus, the crowds are not the center of where he does his best work. For Jesus, it's about discipleship and zeroing in mano a mano, one-on-one here, and links in on the one person who's in the boat with him, and he locks on he asks Peter to do something insane. Now, you've got to understand, Peter has been up all night fishing, right? This is the text that we find. ourselves. They've been up all night fishing. They're drying. They've been drying their nets, and they've caught nothing. And Peter, he's a professional fisherman. He's been doing this for a little while. He knows what he's doing. And then you get this fancy-pancy little rabbi who's come from Nazareth. Sure, he can heal some people, but this is my domain, fishing. And Jesus says, hey, Peter... Why don't you go and cast nets out in the deep? And I love Simon Peter's response. It's actually the more you study it, the more astounding it is to me. He says in verse 5: Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word I will let down the nets. Let me expand this a little bit, okay, as to what Peter's saying. Peter is saying, Master, okay, this is a statement of authority. It's not just teacher, it's master, it's chief, it's the one who is in charge, master. You know, I'm a professional fisherman. We had crews out here all last night. We're doing exactly what you told us to do. And here's the deal. I know when to fish and where to fish. It's much better to catch fish at night, okay? And it's much better to actually be engaged in the shallows, not the deep, We're not stupid, Jesus. We didn't catch anything all night. But now you're basically saying, okay, go out again. Do the same thing again, but expect different results. Fine. (laughs) We'll do it. This doesn't make sense. It doesn't jive with my experience and where I just was. But because of who you are, I'll do it. And what's the response? Peter gets in there with with a couple of his crew, and they cast the nets. And, and the number of fish is so great that the nets start breaking. So then he calls out the second boat and he's like, hey guys, we've got quite a bit going on here. Can you give me a hand? So then both boats are full pulling in fish and there's so many fish that both boats begin to sink. Now you got to understand, this is kind of like in that particular culture and time period, in that particular vocation, that's like winning the lottery. This is a ton. Of wealth. This changes your life. This opens up opportunities. This changes the trajectory for your family. Not only do they have this extraordinary bounty of fish, but they've kind of unlocked something really unique as to where this might be. And maybe they could do this day after day after day. This changes the game. And they're astounded at this. But even more than the catch, as you see Peter look out at Jesus this penniless rabbi he knows how to do this he knows how to find an extraordinary wealth of fish and he's giving it away like he's not chasing after this he's not trying to now change his life and saying okay now you're going to give you know a good 50% of that back to my ministry no, it seems like Jesus has the capacity for extraordinary wealth, has an inroad to a really unique opportunity, and he just gives it away. And Peter, there's something about this Jesus. He sees him. He sees another side of Jesus, the depth of who he is, with all of his power, but also the ability to not chase after wealth. And he's, he's astounded, and it changes everything. But I'm getting ahead of myself just a little bit. Because here's what I want us to do. I want us to look at first what's so crucial to this following Jesus business. Here's the first thing. When it comes to following Jesus, what we come to see here in this little pericope, this little story, this moment in time, is that following Jesus is not mastering Jesus. Okay, It's not... It's not like memorizing a bunch of Jesus' teachings, figuring out Jesus' is Enneagram and Myers-Briggs and taking a master class on Jesus and like having all the facts such that if somebody gave you a quiz, you're ready to name it all. Like that, listen, study is important. Knowing about Jesus is good, but it's not the summation of what it means to follow Jesus. If you want to do an interesting study for this, Fact it would be to look at the word crowd across the gospel account of Luke. Notice how the crowds are used, how they're described. Sometimes the crowds are for Jesus, sometimes they're against Jesus, sometimes they're curious. But here's what's so crucial on how Luke is presenting this: the crowds are never where following Jesus happens. The crowds are not where following Jesus happens. You see the crowd? The crowd's full of fans. The crowd is full of fans, people like Chiefs fans who love a lot, you know, a lot of hype and energy and good feels when we're doing really great. We love being a part of a winning team. There's something that's exciting about that. The crowd is full of fans. The crowd is also full of the intrigued. I mean, Jesus is brilliant, and some of his ideas and how he shares can unlock just these ideas and where we can go and mentally be stimulated and better understand the world. The crowd's also full of the angry, though, where we see people who are seeking to pick Jesus and his teachings apart. The crowd is made up of so many different people, but listen, the crowd is not where people follow Jesus. Because following Jesus is not mastering him. It's something much deeper. You see, if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to be his disciple, if you want to know the real Jesus, it's not by mastering him. You see, following Jesus instead is being mastered by him. And it's a slight tweak to be sure, but it has massive ramifications. And it's unbelievable, un- unbelievably on display here in our text this morning. And I want to be clear, not being mastered by someone's Curated version of Jesus. Not just a nice artistic version or some scholar's pursuit in the historical Jesus. No. The real Jesus as displayed by those who knew Jesus best, who sought to record their experiences with Jesus so that we could actually have access to who he is in history and over history. This is unbelievably important. To be mastered by someone. And this is really... This is really hard for our culture, for you and for me, as 21st century modern Americans and Kansas Cityans. Here's why. We are enculturated. We are told that how we find our truest selves, our deepest delight, is to chase our desires at the cost of all others, to chase Our goals, what we feel is right. Our emotions are told to be our master. No one else. And here's the deal. To actually invite someone to challenge what we feel and what we think and say that you have more authority than my own internal desires isn't just weird in our culture, it's communicated as unjust. It's wrong. It's evil. Anyone who would squelch what you feel Feel or challenge what you feel is evil. But not so with Jesus. So he displays. Following Jesus means being mastered by him and saying you have the final authority or in the words of Peter later when Jesus says, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, where else are we going to go and find the words of life? You see, it's so crucial to understand that Jesus is the master and we're the apprentice and he's the one guiding us into life and he has the right to say wherever we should go and we follow. The reason why this is so important to understand when it comes to knowing the real Jesus is because sometimes following Jesus feels insane. It feels insane. What's the pop definition of insanity? doing the same thing over and over, but expecting different results, right? (laughs) What happens with Peter and Jesus? Okay, cue Jesus. I want you to put your nets out, and I want you to catch some fish. Cue Peter. We've been doing that again and again and again, and we got nothing. But we'll do it again and expect different results. (laughs) This is insane. What Jesus invites Peter to do. And this is a small microcosm of basically the whole journey and what it means to follow Jesus. And listen, in your life and mine, there are moments where Jesus is going to call us towards a course of action, towards an engagement in a relationship that's going to chafe against our past experiences. We've either had deformed relationships in a family culture that we have been brought up in. We've had harmful, painful relationships. You've met roadblocks at your work. Whatever the case may be, we have experiences in our past that often will challenge the future Jesus has for us. And it can feel insane. Not to mention, we have these cultural narratives or these scripts Where the surrounding world is telling us, hey, do you want to know what it means to know real joy? Do you want to know what it means to finally feel good about who you are? Do you want to know what it means to be successful and to make an impact? Follow this script. And there are all kinds of scripts. And Jesus is saying, that script needs to submit to my script. Just for example, Jesus' sex sex ethic makes absolutely no sense with the surrounding world the sex ethic that Jesus presents actually is damned by the broader cultural script as being harmful, as being destructive. And Jesus says, no, it brings life. Jesus' generosity and his framework for generosity doesn't jive with a consumeristic culture that says buying more makes you feel more important, cultivates comfort, and finally will lift you up to a place of security and joy so you can coast through life. And Jesus says, no, the opposite. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus' ethic around love of our enemies makes no sense and is in complete contradiction with the demonizing and polarizing political culture in which we find ourselves. Over and over again, the scripts that Jesus provides and the world provides clash, and it can feel utterly insane to follow him, which is why we don't come trying to master Jesus, figure out everything we can so we can manipulate Jesus to get what we want. Instead, we must be mastered by him see ourselves as apprentices knowing that often when we chase what we think we want what we think we need it leads to our destruction but instead saying jesus oftentimes we don't even know what we should want help us a very very different framework and frankly that's that's kind of when you i don't know if you think about your own faith journey but for me that's when my faith came alive like okay so i grew up in a broken home but I was seeking out all this affirmation and acceptance through the church. And by that, I mean, you know, I was a really good church boy. <laughs> like, I mastered Jesus. Like, you know, you had sword drills where you could, like, pop up and open your Bible. You know, the Word of God. And you, oh, Malachi 6, got it. You know, like, I could do those things great. I knew the answers to obscure theological questions. You know, I was singing loud in the songs. Oh, there's Gabe. You can tell he's here. He's really loud. Um, (laughs) You know, what a good boy. Uh, And all of this, I I I was seeking affirmation. I was seeking acceptance and trying to fill this void by curating an image of myself before others, ticking off their boxes. But the problem is, is it just felt dead. I felt dead. I mean, you know, it kind of gives you like a jolt every now and then, like, oh, good, somebody thought I was good enough to to give a compliment to. Oh, you know, there's these jolts, but it doesn't sustain you. It wasn't until like around middle school where I just, I kept going to, I've got issues with sleep, apparently. I couldn't fall asleep. (laughs) And I kept having this image pop in my mind of Jesus with his nail-scarred hands, just saying, come to me, it's not too late. I was like, I know everything about you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know everything, but come to me. Until eventually, I just got out of my bed, I got down on my knees, and I didn't pray, I believe. End of prayer. What I prayed was, I surrender. I believe that Jesus, you're the son of God. Holy God, yeah. That you died for my sins. You've paid for that. You rose again. And you, you give power through the Holy Spirit to those who are following you. But my life, all of, I, all of who I am, it's yours. I'm done, to, I'm done trying to just manipulate everything. I just want to be yours. Whatever that means, take me there. And that's when I started following Jesus. And that's when he started pouring his life into me. You see, one of the greatest paradoxes is that in mastering, being mastered by Jesus, we find some of the greatest and richest of lives to lead. You know, Jesus does this over and over again. He uses these different metaphors, right? He like, take up your cross and follow me. Those who lose their life will find it. Enter my yoke and you'll find rest. It's these, this language of submission that breeds life. And even here, we find being mastered by him in a way that sometimes even feels insane. And then we find an unlocking of something deep and rich. And this is what I want to see, because this is or I want to I want to talk about, because here in this passage, we see at least three pretty massive effects that begin to take root in Peter's life. When he lets Jesus master him, when he lets Jesus have the final say, even though it feels insane. And here's the first one. Here's the first one. The first effect that we begin to experience is this deeper intimacy with Jesus. You see, when Peter Peter says, I know this doesn't make any sense, I know you're the master, but I'm still going to do it because of who you are. It doesn't make sense to me, but I'm going to do it because... He gets a glimpse of who Jesus is that he would have never seen had he not obeyed. He gets a window into who Jesus is and what he's capable of. If if he would have not obeyed, he would have never have got that window into who Jesus was. And he got a deeper window into himself. You see, we don't get just a glimpse of who Jesus is when we begin to really follow him. We begin to understand ourselves more deeply. This is the first time the word sinner is used in Luke's gospel. And it comes in the face of obedience and trust. And, and Peter, he's, he sees Jesus for who he is and he begins to see who he is more deeply. And what does he say when he jump down to verse eight? He says, depart from me, For I am a sinful man, oh Lord. He sees Jesus and then he sees himself. Have you ever like um, put on what you thought was a white t-shirt? And then you stand next to somebody who's like just bought a white t-shirt. That was like my high school choir experience. Like you get up in there and you're like, oh my goodness, Uh, this is like yellow. Um, Like all you want to do, like when you finally stand up next to someone who has like a brilliant white shirt is you just want to hide. And that's what Peter experiences. He sees himself next to the God-man and who he is. And like Isaiah 6, he's like, he's blown away like the prophets of old. He's blown away by how amazing God is. And he wants to hide because of his shame and his brokenness. And what's so important to notice here is how Jesus responds to that. That's actually a really normal reaction. And we can't say, oh, you know, you experienced shame in the face of Jesus. You've missed it. No, 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 no. We will because he's extraordinary and we are broken. But what Jesus does is even more astounding. When you get to verse 10, what does Jesus say? Do not be afraid. He meets Peter in his brokenness and his shame. And he creates space and he invites him in closer. He makes forgiveness and cleansing available. And instead of now relegating him to the crowds, he invites him into deeper intimacy. You see, this language of following isn't like looking at a topic from afar and and dissecting it without cost. Following is this intimate, shoulder-to-shoulder experience that Jesus longs for us to know. And the more, listen, the more you let Jesus master you, and you become his apprentice, apprentice, here's what you see. You see yourself in your brokenness and you see him in his beauty, but what you come to know and it begins to settle deeper in your heart is just how much Jesus wants you and loves you. And it's such a paradox that it happens within this master-apprentice relationship because he sees more of who you are and you realize he sees more of who you are and he still wants you. And it breeds intimacy that's only possible when we obey him and trust him and walk with him. Jesus even says this is his love language, right? Those who love me will what? Obey my commands. So number one, intimacy. And then out of this intimacy comes number two, freedom. Freedom. Freedom is this overflow of this intimate connection with our Lord and Savior. I mean, look at Peter. Peter. He has the largest catch of his entire life that changes could change the very trajectory of his life, and then he walks away from it all. I mean, this is what every fisherman is shooting for, and now he leaves it all behind. How on earth is that possible? It's easy to say no to something. When you feel confident, you're saying yes to something better. It's kind of like when, you know, when you're in high school, And let's just say you graduate high school and you find out that you get into your top tier college and you applied to some safety schools, right? It sure is really easy to say no to those safety schools if you get into your top tier college, right? It's like, well, of course, I got the best one. I'm not gonna wrestle with some FOMO around these other ones, right? Fear of missing out. I know some people are already thinking about the Chiefs game, so I figured I'd loop that in. You see, with Jesus, what, he comes to, what we come to understand deeply in the midst of this is that devotion always precedes self-sustained or sustained self-denial. When it comes to walking with him, we become so committed to the master and we see him in his brilliance and his beauty that saying no to lesser things becomes easier. It's not that it ever becomes completely easy. But it becomes easier because we know who we're saying yes to. Now, a couple quick caveats in light of this, just because this text has been abused quite a bit um, throughout the history of the church. And here's the first thing. This freedom that Jesus brings and the call to follow him does not mean that you have to leave your occupation to somehow engage in the most robust of apprenticeships and masters with Jesus that's not what this means at all. Often Jesus will tell people to stay exactly where they are in order to follow him. And that doesn't stop the intimacy. You don't have to somehow enter into nonprofit or pastoral work in order to know the richest of intimacy with Jesus. It's true for Peter because it's unique to his vocational calling. But that is now not the only way to experience the most richest of intimacies. No, he can be working through your current occupation and meeting you there and walking with him in your space of work. That's the first caveat. The second is that you don't have to leave your cultural heritage to follow Jesus. You see, when, when we start following Jesus, it does, we don't become these whitewashed tombs that have no cultural history, no racial situatedness, no gender realities, This just this whitewashed vanilla experience. No, that's not what it means to follow Jesus. Our primary identity is definitely in him, but these secondary identities actually bring richness to the diversity and how he's gifted you, situated you to carry out his kingdom work. A really good book um, I'd recommend is Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the world's largest religion. It was uh, one of Christianity Today's top um, books for 2020. And Rebecca McLaughlin, um, she tells the story of Praveen Sethapathy. Um, he is a geneticist, a genetics professor at Cornell University. You know, so some small no-name college you probably never heard of. Um, really brilliant guy, really brilliant guy, geneticist um, uh, professor at uh, Cornell University. And while he was a freshman, at Cornell studying genetics, um, he started asking himself questions around what he actually believed as a Hindu. And so he began to look at the religious texts of the Hindu faith and began to dive deeper and and wrestle through some of the main ideology. And, and, And then as a good scientist, he started reading books from other major religions, which of course included Christianity and the gospel accounts around Jesus. Eventually, as he was doing his research, he became more compelled by the Jesus of Nazareth in this extraordinary power reversal that someone who is the creator became human and then he dies for people. He became unbelievably compelled that he became a Christian because this was so different than the hero of Hinduism, Krishna. Very different. And so he became a Christian and his family freaked out. Rightfully so. And they said, well, does that mean, Praveen, that you're going to now take on, you know, a white Western name like John or Peter or something like that? Are you going to leave your family? Are you now no longer going to engage in any of the cultural practices of Hinduism? And he's like, no, 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 no. Christianity, Jesus challenges every culture in some degree. But he says, I can still be Indian. I can still be a genetics professor. I can still be Praveen. And follow Jesus because he brings me freedom where I am for his purposes. You see, extremely important to understand what it means and what Jesus actually does when we do submit to him as master over our lives. And it's out of this intimacy and out of this freedom when it begins to bubble up. What it, often when we get freedom... We think of it as boundlessness, this opportunity to do whatever we wish. But actually, what Jesus does when He gives us this freedom is He gives us, number three, an untold purpose, an extraordinary purpose in the midst of this freedom. You see, Jesus, He invites us to a deep vocational richness, no matter our occupation, for the impact of the world, for His glory and our good. And you see this here in verse 10. He comes to Peter and he says, from now on, you will be catching men. In the same way, Peter, that I caught you, Jesus says, you're going to be doing this with others. And you and I have been invited into an extraordinary opportunity that wherever we are, we can now have this opportunity to be this compassionate presence that reaches out and points people to the freedom and the intimacy we can have in Jesus. I want you to think about, just for a second, who are some of the most attractive people in your life? (laughs) So what I don't mean, what I'm not saying, I mean, I'm talking about the people that you just love spending time with. Like you move heaven and earth just to hear them talk, to kind of catch up with them on life. What makes them so attractive? It's more than physical beauty. It's more than you know, their status. It's more than what they've accomplished. There's something deep, right? Even when I think about the people in my life, it's something deep within who they are. That when I'm with them, it's this rich experience. And it's less, like some of the people that I just love being with, that I'll move heaven and earth, you know, for to be with, are the people that, they just, they're not like figuring out all these tactics on how to squeeze Jesus in. Instead, They know a rich intimacy with Jesus. They just kind of exude a freedom about them where they're not like every conversation trying to prove their existence to me. They listen well, they look for ways to encourage, and it just naturally gets to Jesus because he's at the center of their life. And that becomes so attractive. And it's not something that they do, it's someone they've become, and that's what Jesus wants to do. This is why Jesus is unwilling to just be mastered, because what we want or what we think we need oftentimes leads to our destruction, and Jesus doesn't want to just give us what we want. He wants to make us into a different kind of person who can actually want what's good for us and become a catalyst out of intimacy with him and the freedom we experience in life to actually carry out his good purposes in the world. This is why being mastered by him is such an extraordinary invitation. So with that being said, let me ask you this morning, what's that next step you need to take in following Jesus? Where in your life do you need to tell Jesus, I will, today? It may feel insane. It actually may feel like something you've been doing for a while, and you're getting exhausted. Here's what's so important. Look at Peter's life. This isn't like a one-and-done reality for him. The rest of his journey with Jesus is him learning this lesson over and over again. He had every right to say, I'm exhausted. I'm tired, Jesus. I've been fishing all night. Use someone else. We come so easily with excuses. And listen, every single one of us in here has something. Something that feels insane, that feels like Jesus is calling us to, and we've said no because we're really arrogant and think we know better than Jesus. And listen, it's going to stifle that intimacy. It's going to stifle your freedom. It's going to decrease your purpose. The way to know this to the full is to step into the insane with him. For example, I was uh, a couple weeks ago. um, Okay, so I'm a pastor and I kind of overdo it with my kids. Not a surprise maybe to some of you who know me. And, you know, it was one morning we were um, walking through Tim and Kathy Keller's New City Catechism with our kids. What is your only hope in life and death? You know, these questions and responses with our kids. And we're also working on Psalm 23. This beautiful picture of the Lord as our shepherd, right? Until finally my son Israel... He's just so blunt. He goes, Dad, can we just not talk about God right now? <laughs> all right. Um, no, I, I love Israel. He says what everybody's thinking. He's so good. I was like, no, 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 yeah, cool. Cool, son, it's all right, yeah. Um, so I went for like a run, and, I, you know, I, what I love about my son Israel he's, he just never takes anything at face value, like he'll dive deep, or he'll just mull over it for a long time before he really makes it, you know, concerted, like a real clear decision for him, and so I was running, and I was just praying, it's like, Lord, help me to figure out what it looks like as a father of Israel, you know, I've got Ava and Zion, but with Israel, like, how do I cultivate an environment where where faith naturally germinates, right, and grows, so, you know, I get back after this run, and I was like, I'm just going to play Legos with Israel, we're not going to talk about God, not going to be the you know cliche pastor dad. Um, we're just going to sit there. So we're playing with Legos, and uh, <laughs> I was like, "Hey buddy, you know I know you, where'd that big tower? He made this beautiful like really big tower a couple days before this moment." And I was like, "Where'd that tower go? I know you loved that tower." And he goes, "Oh, I tore it apart." In my mind, I'm thinking, he builds things, tears them apart, so he can create something else out of his imagination. He's super creative. Um, <clears throat> And I said, oh, really? Why would you do that? And he says, well, I loved it too much. So he's four, okay, just to be clear. Really thoughtful kid. He's a lot like his mom. So I'm sitting there, and, uh, and I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, I loved it so much that I stopped loving God. I'm like, okay, all right. <laughs> uh, he's like, yeah, so I tore it apart, and now I love God again. I said, okay, all right, cool, cool. <laughs> You know, everything inside of me is, like, screaming, like, yes! You know, Allie was actually doing some coloring with Ava, and she, a- Allie, like, looks up, and she goes, like, so you tore that apart. Like, let me be clear. You tore that apart because you felt like it was stopping you from loving God. Yeah. And then, but now you love God again. Yeah, that's, yeah. So I had to tear it apart because it stopped me from loving God, but now I love him again because so I, I had to tear it apart. I was like, okay, great. Like, listen, a four-year-old gets it. What, like, this may seem insane, but for him, in that moment, that had, like, captured his heart. And in that moment, he was like, okay, it's Legos, but I'm going to tear it apart because I want to love God more. Outside of the—it may look insane, but every single one of us, it's as simple as that in every one of our lives today. The thing that we get better at, like, it's always that question. It's always that question. What do we need to say, I will, to Jesus. We just get better as adults justifying our sin and justifying our motionlessness and say, well, God will understand. He does, and he's so gracious, but you're missing out. I mean, imagine if Peter would have said no, like if there was a framework where he was sitting there and he said, you know what, talk with James and John. They'll do it. Sure, he would have been, maybe had a status quo life, but he'd have been left with his empty nets. And you would have missed out on so much with Jesus. What about you? What do you want? This is what Jesus wants for you. How are you going to respond to him? And one of the gifts of coming together like this every Sunday is we have a meal that gives us an opportunity to respond. In and of itself, it's a moment to remember all that God and Christ has done for us, to purchase this life for us and make it available to us. But it's also a moment to respond. You see, in this common broken bread, we remember Jesus' body broken for us. And in common juice, we remember his bloodshed for the forgiveness of our sins. He has gone to great lengths to communicate. He will do whatever it takes to let us know he loves us and he wants the best for us. Allow this meal this morning that when you come, use it as a time that when you eat the bread that's been dipped in the juice, that you say, I will. And you step back to your seat as a way of stepping back into the insane